Praise God. That's a good group of young people. Uh, so thankful again for the McGuire's and taking on that ministry. And so thankful again that we can gather today. And uh, many, I think, are watching this morning again online who have been sick and uh, thankful for this medium that, that we have. Although it's not ideal, we, we always want to meet together and rejoice together. We're commanded to, to meet together and rejoice together where we can be thankful. You know, times that we happen to be sick, that we have this ability to hear God's word and, uh, and, uh, and hear it preached to us. And uh, we're in this fascinating passage of Scripture. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed uh, going through the book of Acts, and I've really um, uh, been amazed. But when we come to our section today, we really come to a turning point. And the turning point is basically this. It's persecution, opposition against those who happen to be believers will really ramp up. When you look at Christianity, although there's been opposition and even some persecution, it was still looked upon, again, as a sect of Judaism. Now it's going to become outlawed in the next couple chapters, the next chapter and a half. And we'll see, again, that that persecution will even lead to Stephen's death. And that's the thing that happens to be, again, of this next paragraph that happens to be right here. We're introduced to him briefly in the paragraph before, but now Stephen becomes the prime uh, person in this paragraph. And we realize that he was selected as one of the seven who would, be, who would carry out the distribution of the goods to those that happen to be of the poor widows that happen to be in uh, the Jerusalem church at this time. But as you look at this paragraph, you, you understand that he was much more than just filling a task for the church. But this man was respected by all those who went to that church. He was involved in the making and maturing of disciples for the glory of God. And his martyrdom would have been a, a really disturbing, a really painful for this early church. You know, it's incredible, again, to look at that. And there's a few things that we need to point out before we start going through uh, verses 8 and following. And it's basically this. When you look at the Hellenists, when you look at all these various different nationalities that happen to be uh, represented, they're different than the first paragraph. In the first paragraph, the Hellenistic Jews were those who happened to be believers in the Lord Jesus. And when there was a problem, they wanted to solve the problem. They wanted God to be glorified. They wanted God to be praised. When you look at these Hellenists, they stand opposed to Jesus Christ. They stand completely opposed. It doesn't matter what the scriptures say. It doesn't matter, again, what Stephen argues. They stand opposed to him. And we pointed this out throughout the book of Acts. But when you look at the face of unbelief, it comes, it comes in many different forms. But it has this at the heart. There is a rejection of Jesus Christ. And you can see that. The other thing that we have to point out about, and um, we'll, we'll see it right at the end of the next chapter, is this. You know, in this paragraph that we're looking at, in verse number 8 and following, this is what you have to realize. Although he's not mentioned, Saul of Tarsus would have been present in all of this. You know, Saul of Tarsus would be a very influential individual at this time in the church. He would have heard the disputes. He would have heard the argumentations of Stephen taking the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the Christ. He's probably entered into some of these discussions that happen to begin right here. And this is the thing you have to realize. You know, throughout this book, the main speaker all the way through in the opening six chapters has been Peter. We've heard Peter. We've heard Peter. We've heard Peter. We've heard him represent the apostles, represent the church. But in this chapter, and into the next chapter, we hear another voice. And that voice happens to be, again, Stephen. And Stephen is the forerunner of the Apostle Paul. So when you look at him, and you look at the Apostle Paul, we realize, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they are of the same spirit. 
You know, and you look at Peter, Peter's many times called the apostle to the Jews. When you look at Paul, he's many times called the apostle to the Gentiles. And here is Stephen, and he's preaching to these Hellenistic Jews from all over the empire. And when the church finally is scattered, they're going to go everywhere with this gospel, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to all places that happen to begin of the empire. You know, and I think a lot of times when we look at Stephen, we look again and say things like, you know, they broke the mold after that. You know, we don't have Stevens today. You know, we do realize that God raises up various different individuals for such a time as this. You know, but when you look at Stephen, the greatness is not in Stephen himself. It really isn't. You know, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things for, for him. You know, and it's God who molds our character. It's God, again, who works in our lives. But at the same time, one of the things that we have to realize in all of that, because we all say yay and amen and all those things, one of the things we have to realize is we have to put effort into our sanctification. We have to put effort into our change, right? We realize God changes us, but as we realize that, God wants us to put effort into knowing him, effort into growing, effort into be molding more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can see this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse number 12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to what he commands, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And there's that effort, right? Work it out. Put effort into it, knowing Christ, knowing the validity of your salvation. And then he goes on right after that, and he explains it. For it is God who works in you, both the will and to work of his good pleasure. And that's an amazing verse. It really is, because when you think of the easy believism that's really captured Christianity today, I think Stephen's an anomaly, isn't it? We look at Stephen many times and we think that's the oddity, that God could actually change the heart so much so that there would be such a love for Jesus Christ that everything else was secondary in life. And yet he's, he's not the oddity. You know, we become so accustomed to not loving Christ, but loving the things that happen to begin of the world, that we don't see what true Christianity is. You know, how it changes our character, how it changes, again, who we happen to be. You know, and I know a lot of us would say, yeah, yes, that's absolutely true. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. How is God changing us? You know, how is God molding us? Even through this Christmas season, how is he molding us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be the witnesses of the Lord Jesus? Because when you look at this man... We understand, again, so much of him because he goes through the furnace of affliction, doesn't he? And what comes out of him, think of it, when he goes through that furnace of affliction is the glory of God. You know, he, he sings, he praises, he teaches, he proclaims the glory of this great God. And it's amazing because the more you get on... In, in your Christian life, if you're being changed more and more in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how you know you're being changed. It's because you forget less, you forget more about yourself, and, it's, and, and, it, and it starts being more about other people. And you can see that in Stephen's life. You know, he's involved in the making and maturing of disciples in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's also outreaching, you know, to those who happen to be Hellenistic Jews, to those who happen to be these various different synagogues, making known the truth of Jesus Christ. And I find, you know, we get so wrapped up in the season, we get so wrapped up in everything going on that we forget about Christ so easily. 
And I think this is a great example, you know, a great encouragement to each one of us how God can use our lives in a significant way to make much of his glory, to make much of the saving efficacy of the Lord Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to be going through Stephen and looking at his life, looking at his testimony, looking at his preaching for a number of months. But I really want to introduce him this morning. You know, so we're just going to look at briefly at what it says about Stephen in, in, in a couple of ways. And I hope it will be encouragement to you that God really can take ordinary people like us and transform us so much so that we can do great things for a great God that happens to be above. But first of all, I want us to see the spiritual convictions of this man. And you see it way back in verse number five. We looked at this uh, a couple times, but I really want us to see what it says about Stephen in particular. It says, and, when they, and, and what they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose, here it is, Stephen. And listen how he's described. A man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Right? And there we have it right there, that he's full of something, right? And here's, and here's what we have to realize, and I think, again, all of us realize this, but all of us that are human, there's two parts to our humanity, isn't there? There's what we call the external and what we call the internal, right? What we call our corporal self and our incorporal self, what people can see and what people cannot see, right? We call it the physical, we call it the spirit, right? Man is a dichotomy, right? Both material and immaterial. And we ask the question, and it's a question that's asked so often, what's more important? Is it the outside or the inside? And I think the, key, the answer to that is really easy for most of us. And it happens to be, again, the inside of us. God wants to own our heart. In fact, again, if he owns our heart, if he's preeminent in our heart, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our external will be conformed to him. But God wants our hearts. And here's the thing to ask yourself. How much, how concerned are you, uh, you with the inside of you? Who you happen to be on the inside? You know, uh, because this is the main thing uh, of Christmas time. And you see this a lot at Christmas time, that people are so concerned as far as the external. Is it, isn't it true? We have to have the perfect family photo. We have to have the perfect meal. We have to have the perfect setting. We have to have the perfect Christmas tree. You know, everything's about the external, but how much are we worried about our internal? That's the amazing thing about the beauty of Jesus Christ. When you look at the beauty of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about the external. You know, there was no form, there was no comeliness, there was no external beauty of himself. But when we talk about the beauty of Christ, we're talking about his character, aren't we? And when we talk about Stephen, of course, we have no images of, of Stephen either. But when we talk about Stephen, the beauty of Stephen is in his spiritual convictions. You know, what he lived for. And it came out. You know, when that pressure came out, he was able to stand for Jesus Christ because of what was in him. And we can see that right here in verse number five because he's described this way, a man full of faith, right? And now here's the question. What does it mean to be full of faith? You know, we realize that we begin our Christian lives by faith. You know, faith speaks of something we do not see, you know, but something we're absolutely convinced of, right? We believe that Jesus Christ, we, we teach this, we sing about this. In fact, we sung about this this morning. Jesus is the God-man, right? He came, you know, here he is existing as the Christ, and he comes into our humanity. He enters in, and he's fully God and fully man. Now, now we haven't seen Jesus, 
but we hold that he came beyond a shadow of we, we hold that he came and lived that perfect life that none of us could ever live, and he died that substitutionary death, and he rose from the grave, and he lives forevermore. And this is what we say beyond a shadow of a doubt. We say we believe those things. And when you look at your Christian life, your Christian life started by faith, faith in these glorious truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as we look at these truths, this is the thing that we grow in our faith. And when we say that we grow in faith, it's not talked about uh, something that's mystical. In other words, I'm growing in some sort of a plethora, you know, this idea of these mystical truths that do not make sense. But we grow in the scriptures, don't we? We grow to see who God is. We grow to see the certainty of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We grow to see the glory and the bigness of the promises that have to begin reading here. So, so when you look at our faith, our faith is substantial. It's objective. We look at these truths. But faith, and I want us to get this, is also experiential. We live in light of these truths, right? In other words, they, they come inside of us and they go out of us. And there's a way of living. And you can see this with Stephen. You can see this even when Jesus calls the apostles. He calls them the OU of little faith. But when the centurion comes to them, it comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus, requests of Jesus, will you heal my servant? And Jesus says, I will go. Where is he? And he says, no, you don't have to go. Just speak, because you are a man of authority. He says, this man has great faith. Right? right? Why did he respond that way? He responded that way because he recognized who Christ was, who Jesus was. You know, um, even as we see Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 19, he says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, right? He's given a promise, and here it is. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I mean, when was Abraham given the promise that he would have a son of promise? And it's when he's uh, 100 years old. I mean, think of it. You know, how many of us would doubt but I know my God, right? right? And it goes on. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But this is what he did. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Why didn't Abraham weaken in faith? Abraham didn't weaken in faith because of this. He recognized who God was. He walked in that fullness of faith, what God was able to say, what God was able then to do. And he walked in light of that. And here's where the battle, I think, comes into our life. As many times we can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this promise, I know this promise, I know this truth, I know this truth, I know this truth. But when it comes, it's one thing to know the truth, and it's another thing to believe that truth. In other words, to walk by faith. And I think many times we go up and down on this, don't we? You know, let me just give you one example. You know, if you happen to be a parent, this is, what, this is what you would say that you believe. You say that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this, that God is absolutely sovereign. In other words, he controls all things. He's brought all circumstances to bear in each one of our lives. We would also say this, because I'm a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has a perfect love for me. All things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, right? We would all profess that. And then your child does something stupid, even something sinful. And what happens? Ah! Right? We want to take control. 
We get upset. We lose it in that moment. And when we lose it in that moment, we're no longer representative of God, but we're representative of self. We're no longer trusting in God's sovereignty, but we want to be sovereign. In that moment, I say, yeah, 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 this is what the Bible says. I know this is what the Bible says. But here's, here's the question. Do we believe it? Are we full of faith in that moment? You know, when somebody asks us about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and asks us that uh, truth, we know that there's going to be opposition. We know beyond a shadow of doubt. Think of Stephen. There's going to be opposition if I tell them what I believe. So what do we do? We remain silent. We know they need these truths. We know they need, but do we believe it? Do we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt? When we look at all the lust, all the um, uh, illicit things that happen to begin out there, it's amazing how many people get drawn in this area and drawn in that area, and they know God is holy and God has the best for us. And we can know that. But let me ask you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, do you believe those truths? You know, because that's where the push comes to shove. When you look at... Um, when you look at Stephen, when he's squeezed, when he's put in that corner, what he truly believes comes out of him, doesn't it? You know, when we realize what comes out of him are these convictions. He is full of faith. There's nothing else mixed in there. He's full of this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also realize as we look at Stephen, the reason why he's full of that, right? Because we would say, how could he ever respond like that? And the answer is God. Because it says, says this, it says he, uh, he's a man what? He's um, a man full of faith, and then it says of, this, of the Holy Spirit. And when he, when he says that word full, it covers both faith and the Holy Spirit. And we've covered this a lot, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the Holy Spirit, but we realize the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triunity of God. If you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he's taken up residence in your inner self, right? right? And when it says there's full, it's not talking about degree, right? It's talking about control. It's not that I have half the spirit or three quarters of the spirit. The spirit's a person. You have all of the spirit. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about, again, control. I can be controlled by anger. I can be controlled by bitterness. I can be controlled by depression. I can be controlled by sensuality. There's a million things that we can be controlled by that happen to be in our life. When you look at, look at Stephen here, he's controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. He's filled, again, recognizing again who he is. And isn't it amazing, even as you look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was a man who was filled, as it was controlled by the Holy Spirit, without measure. And so when you look at his life, and you really get this through the Gospel of John, because it says it over and over and over, and he says it over and over and over, and he does it over and over throughout the Gospel of John, is basically this, I've come to do the will of my Father, I've come to do the will of my Father, I've come to do the will of my Father. And he does the will of the Father, does the will of the Father, does the will of the Father. And why? Because he's a man who is filled by the Spirit without measure. You know, and that's something to, 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 to and the other thing that's significant about the, the uh, Jesus' life is what the Holy Spirit used. The means that the Holy Spirit used to accomplish the will of the Father is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, Spirit-inspired Word of God. So when you cut the Lord Jesus, what came out of him, when you pressed him, what came out of him is the Word of God is the response of the Word of God. 
is the glory of the, of the Father that happened to be again above. And we could say the same for Stephen. You know, when you look at this man, he's full of that. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, as we look at our inner selves, what are we full of? Are we full of faith in Jesus? Are we full of the Spirit of God and His Word? When the pressure's on, this is the thing you have to realize. When the pressure comes on our lives, whatever is inside will come outside. It's a spiritual principle. You know, and so I want us to see that, that our spiritual convictions will all the time become manifest. And you can see this in verse number eight, because look at what it says right here. It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, you know, it is absolutely amazing that if you're a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are born again. You know, and we use that very flippantly many times to speak of our standing before God, but it's, it's talking about something else. It's talking about that I have been given new life, right? I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. There's a new living hope that has been placed in me. And because of that, there is going to be a new response, a new living of this life. And it's absolutely incredible because we can actually change. You know, and, and how we know that we are these new people in Jesus Christ is by what's coming out of us. You know, uh, Jesus gave this principle. It's over in Luke chapter 6 and verses 43 and 44. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, let me give you a, a really deep theological question this morning. You know, how do you know the difference between a pear tree and an apple tree? How do you know the difference? Praise the Lord. That's it, isn't it? Right? right? You don't never go to a pear tree and we'll look for an apple. Let me tell you, you can examine all the pears that happen to be again on the tree, and guess what they're going to be? They're going to be pears. And why? It's because the nature of that tree is to produce pears, right? The nature of an apple tree is to produce apples. And the nature comes from its root system, something you cannot see, right? Because of that, a fruit comes out. And whatever's inside of us, here, here it is, will eventually come out. Here's the amazing thing about our great God. The amazing thing about our great God is because he has given us new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can actually become what we are not. In other words, we can actually have different fruit from our lives. I mean, it's an absolute extraordinary truth that is taught throughout the Word of God. And you can see this in Stephen's life. Again, Stephen is just an ordinary man. He's an ordinary man that's able to withstand this extraordinary pressure that happens to be again upon him. It's because of what's on the inside. You know, what's on the inside? Think of how often we want to blame people and circumstances, you know, situations. You know, I would have never done that. I would have never said that. If I wasn't put in that situation, I would have never done that. I would have never said that if that person wasn't in my life. You know, and we love to blame other people. You know, it's not me. It's not who I am. Right? And think of it, because we're, life is like a sponge. Right? If, if you have one of those big car sponges, you know, whatever you soap up, that's what's inside of you. And then when the pressure comes of life, somebody squeezes you. Whatever you soaked, soaked up in your life will come out. If it's rage, 
if it's anger, if it's self-righteousness, if it's lust, if these are the things that I have soaked up in my life, when somebody squeezes me, that's what's come out. And here, here's Stephen, and he's going to be squeezed. And guess what's going to come out of him? Something so different. And the reason why is because he's full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, so much so that this is what we read in verse number 8 about him. This is what comes out of him. And Stephen, here it is, full of grace. So when the pressure is on in Stephen's life, what comes out of him? Grace. You know, and what is grace? What does it mean to be full of grace? And it basically has two meanings. And one of them is to be full of the grace of God. You know, to realize beyond a shadow of a doubt the great grace that God has given us. And I don't know, at least I'm speaking for myself, if we meditate upon this truth long and hard enough. Isn't it true? I mean, what's grace? Grace is God's ill-deserved favor that's given to me when I deserve the exact opposite of it. Isn't it true? When you read about the horrors of hell, there's some people that have lived more righteous lives than I am. And that's a reality today. We never realize how great the cost of our sin is because we never realize the greatness of the glory of God. We never realize how awful sin is in God's estimation. We can grow. That's part of the growing experience, to grow to see how awful, how vile sin is. And it's done against this great and majestic God. And none of us can ever know the glory of God, the extreme glory of God, the extreme worthiness of this great God. We can grow in knowing it. And the more that we grow in seeing our own sin and the vileness of our sin, the more we grow in seeing how glorious and grand God is. Here's an amazing thing. We're more, the more that we're amazed at the grace of God, that he has shown us in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to come and give that perfect uh, price for our sin, the more that we're amazed about that. And when you're amazed at grace, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, you can't live in bitterness. Right? When you've been given such grace, such favor in your life, all you can do is be thankful and live with joy in your life. Has anybody ever done a favor for you? You know, and, and what? It's a big favor, and you go, wow, isn't that incredible? You know, it brings joy, it brings gratitude to your heart. Our problem is we always have a chip on our shoulder because we're always living by self-righteousness. I am not getting what I deserve. I deserve so much more. And we, we're bitter. We're angry. We're always pointing at ex external circumstances. Not seeing beyond a shadow of a doubt. We're just not full of faith. We're just not letting the Spirit of God, again, really control our lives so much so that what comes out of us is his grace. I mean, think of Peter. Peter, in the midst, again, of all of this, would sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound, here it is, that saved a wretched soul like me. I wonder how amazed are we at the grace of God? How many times do we reflect on that great grace that has been given to us, that great favor from our majestic God that happens to be above? 
Because there is a second element that flows out of this when we, when we talk about, again, being full of grace. It's not only are you overwhelmed by God's grace that's been given to you, but all of a sudden, because of that, you become a channel of grace to others. In other words, you treat them not in a way that they deserve, but you treat them the same way that God has treated you. You know, with this love, with this glory that happened to be here. Even if others are trying to mishandle you, even if others are trying to do you harm. I mean, think of Stephen. I mean, it's an absolute great example of this. Even Paul would say later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verses 24 and 25, and listen to what, what he uh, says. You know, and I realize this has uh, implications for the pastoral ministry, but it has implications for all of us. And it says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But here it is. But kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance and leading to the knowledge of the true truth. Here it is. He's not quarrelsome. You know, you can imagine this. Uh, some individuals always are looking for a fight, and they never think that they're serving God unless they're in the midst of some argument with other people. But when you look at Stephen, he spoke the truth with gentleness, with conviction. You know, and he sought again, this was his whole goal, not to have an argument. His whole goal was, was to lead these individuals to, to repentance. And let me, let me say this, it is not enough to have the right theology. It's not enough to have the right message, but it's how we bring it, the attitude of our heart in bringing that right message, that right theology, right? Often, often like that, the, uh, I think um, when, you, when you look at the gospel, I, I don't know how else to illustrate it, when you look at the gospel, it's the most sweetest food, isn't it? And if you can think of most delectable delights, because all of us, you know, this Christmas will have delectable delights. You know, many times we'll come back in January and say we have to go on a diet. And why? Because we've had these delectable delights, all of it. But can you imagine? Because if you really want to show the value of these delectable delights, you put them on a nice tray. Isn't it true? You know, and you look at a tray, and imagine a tray that you went out to the front lawn, it'd be easy to do today with all the rain, and you smashed it in the muck. You know, and you pushed it down in the muck. Or either, either that or you left, uh, I don't know, last... Um, Christmases or derbs that happen to be on there, and they sort of cemented in. And then he took the finest food, the finest delectable treats, and he put it on there, and he said, here, here, go ahead and eat. Now, how appetizing would that be for people? And yet, many times, that's the way we give the gospel. You're going straight to hell, you miserable sinner. You know, I can't stand you, and God can't stand you. Praise God. I want to give you the greatest message that has changed my life. And I need this message as much as you. Yeah, I know, I know, I, I, I know this is hard to hear. But I love you enough to give you the truth. Do you see? Right? It's not enough just to give the truth. It's how we give that truth. It's the attitude of heart that happened to be there. You look at Stephen here. And Stephen is gentle. Stephen is truthful. You know, and so often we get angry with people, we get frustrated with them. 
You know, so often we give up on people. We might walk out of a room, hang up on a phone, ignore calls. We might shout. We might go silent or whatever it happens to be. But, but here's Stephen, and he's saturated with Christ. He's saturated with the Spirit. He's saturated with these great truths that what comes out of him is the gospel of grace. In fact, you can imagine it. Here's this hostile. He's the only one standing. He's the only one in that synagogue preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is taken, and he's arrested, and he's put on trial, just about to be put on trial. Here he is in this hostile environment. And the last verse, which we're going to look at in the coming weeks, but the last verse that happens to be in this chapter says this, and gazing at him, in other words, everybody is looking at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There was so much peace, so much joy, so much tranquility, so much trust that God has put me in this place for such an hour as this. And there's no hostility. There's no anger. There's no frustration. Oh, you should see what's going. So, you know, I had to say, I had to do it. Look at this man. You know, you even see this in the next chapter as he preaches that gospel of grace to them. And they're so enraged that they pick up stones and begin to pelt Stephen. At the end of the next chapter, we read this. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There's faith, isn't it? And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me ask you, do those words sound familiar? Where did we hear those words before? Cut him. Press him. Squeeze his sponge. And what comes out? Christ. Grace, right? Right? God's going to get you in the next life. No, Lord. Don't bring them to Jesus. Don't hold this against him. He's full of grace. Look at the rest of verse number eight very quickly. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And here we have the first recorded miracles in the book of Acts that are done by somebody other than the apostles. You know, and we see this through, through, throughout, throughout the book of Acts as the apostles and some apostolic representatives such as Stephen, Barnabas, Philip. These are the ones that are doing these signs and wonders that happen to be again right here. But it's always people who are related to the apostles, apostolic representatives of some import or another. But think of it, because so often we want to concentrate on these signs and wonders and things like this. But when you think about the power of Stephen, when you think about the power of Stephen, when you think about his life, when you think about his testimony, what do you think about? If I told you at the beginning of the service that Stephen did miracles, would any of you go, well, yeah, I know that. But if I told you he was able to stand in the furnace of affliction, able to stand and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you know that? Would you know that he was the first martyr of the church? And I think, again, probably 90% of you would know that, maybe even higher. And this is the power of Stephen's life. The power is in his testimony. 
You know, it's amazing. You know, the further you get on in your Christian life, you realize how short life is. You know, and you also realize, like Stephen, all of us are going to leave a spiritual legacy of some form or another. You know, the question is not, what will I leave behind? And we're not talking about physical things, but what will I leave behind as far as my spiritual legacy? It's either this, that there's one worthy to be lived for. There's one worthy to be praised. There's one worthy to be proclaimed, no matter what the circumstance in our life. Or it's going to be something else. The question is, again, what's going to be our spiritual legacy? And the answer to that is whatever we're putting in the inside, whatever we are going to decide, here, here it is, here it is, put effort into your salvation, put effort into knowing this great God. Whatever I'm putting in the inside, when the pressure's on, when trials come and they do come, comes out, what are we putting on the inside? Maybe it's for the glory of this great Christ that happens to be above. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing text. In many ways, what an amazing man. But Lord, we know if this man was in our midst, dressed in 21st century clothing, he would probably not capture our attention. Lord, if this man was in our midst, we would not see his greatness. Because the greatness really doesn't lie in the person himself. The greatness lies in who controlled his life. The greatness lies in what you can do with such ordinary people when they really choose to be filled by you. God, I just pray that as we look at our faith, as we look at our trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, with all the things that grab our attention, especially this time of year, that the one needful thing in our life that we would grab a hold of, and that's Christ. Help us to be full of conviction, full of faith, full of the Spirit, that what comes out of us when we are pressed and we are squeezed is none other than the grace of the gospel. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the conviction of your word and how it changes us. We just ask that you would mold us through it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.